The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. You might think to yourself, if you've been around here for a lot of years, I haven't very often heard this preacher preach from Mark, and you'd be right. I've actually been all the way through Matthew, Luke, and John three twice each. Why not Mark? Well, if you know the Gospels, you know that most of Mark, the largest percentage of it, is contained in Matthew. So we've heard most of what Mark has had to say, even though I have not looked at that gospel too often with you. But today I come to it in a significant way, and I hope to tell you why I chose Mark's construction of this particularly. Mark chapter 8, we're in the ministry of Christ on earth, teaching, healing, working miracles, feeding Large crowds, healing a blind man is right before this. I pick up Mark 8, beginning at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the very word of God. Suppose I told you that I planned to come to church next Sunday and bring a friend. A friend that maybe you haven't met. And I hope to introduce you to him, but I wanted to sort of prepare the way for that introduction. Before you met my friend, I would prepare you by saying this person is at least quite unusual. I would tell you that he used to hold a very responsible blue-collar job and had great skill at what he did, but he hasn't worked that job now in quite some time, and in fact, he's presently homeless. 
He survives entirely on the charity of others to feed and support him and makes no apology for that status of life. And I should tell you that my friend is one who often makes rather extravagant claims. He never asks for others' advice, and if given it, he often does the opposite. And he never apologizes for doing unusual or odd things. And I think I should also tell you this friend of mine claims to be God's exclusive spokesman on earth. Do you look forward to meeting him? Do you say, I think I'd rather take a pass on a guy like that? He's a little too odd for me. Well, maybe some of you guess that the person I've described is Jesus Christ, none other. Our goal, as I'm with you in these last weeks of my ministry before retirement, is to continue a series in which I said the title, the overarching theme and title was In Christ Alone. My desire is to leave with you as clear a portrait or series of portraits, really, of Jesus Christ as I possibly can. And I began in November and continued right through the Christmas season with some outstanding texts about Christ, talking about him as co-creator, him as God's installed king from Psalm 2, him in his virgin birth. I did a rather unusual sermon in which I said, what if Christ never came? I wanted you to see his effects upon society and our entire history of the world. And I'm now looking for the first time at Jesus in his earthly ministry and have some other things in mind continuing into February. Well, glorifying and raising up a big picture of Christ is my goal. In C.S. Lewis's wonderful children's stories that many of you know, the Narnia Chronicles, there are several children who are said to enter into a magical land together. They see all kinds of wonderful things, and it's a kind of allegory of Christianity and Christian truths. And the children meet the ruler of this land of Narnia, who's a lion. A lion who is somewhat fearful looking, and yet they find him to be gentle and courageous and merciful, really a great leader of his land. And then the children leave Aslan, the lion, and the land of Narnia for a while, and come back and they're amazed to find when they return, even though they've only been gone months, it's hundreds of years in the history of Narnia. And they manage to once again encounter Aslan, the ruling lion. And a girl named Lucy, who had kind of a special relationship with Aslan, comes to him and exclaims, Oh, Aslan, you've grown. You're so much bigger since we saw you last. But the lion, who is, you realize, an obvious symbol of Christ, tells Lucy, the more people get to know me, Lucy, the bigger I look to them. That's my goal as we would think together about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in these coming Sundays. And I preach to you this first Sunday of a new year midway through that series and hope that Maybe some aspects of Christ have already been magnified to you, and there are others that I hope will be before we're finished. We ought to be concerned that we have a growing, blooming, larger and larger view of Christ as our Christian lives go on. 
if you're stuck with the same knowledge of him that you had as a teenager or a child and now you're 50 or 70 or 90, you've missed a lot of spiritual growing. Can you say today that your Savior and your Lord looms more amazing to your view than he was last year or five years ago? Does your mental portrait, your spiritual heart portrait of him, something that's painted in maybe more vivid colors and and greater perspective now because of your immersion in his word and your approaches to him and through him in prayer to the Father? Is Christ one who soars beyond all other personalities who might be considered as part of your life? I take you to this important hour in the life of Jesus, and it's particularly accented that way in the Gospel of Mark. I had the good fortune to take a course in Mark in my last semester in seminary with a noted New Testament professor who was just finishing a commentary on Mark that is still probably regarded as one of the best commentaries on this book. And so we, I felt we were learning from someone who really knew his subject quite well. And Dr. Bill Lane pointed out to us as a class the centrality of this particular text that I have read for you today because it comes exactly in the middle, physically in the sense of the text, in the middle chapter of this gospel. And not only that is it spatially in the middle, but theologically and doctrinally and developmentally it's in the middle because this recognition of who Jesus is by Peter is so crucial that it it literally is the pivot point of the rest of the gospel. Jesus had been leading the disciples to know him. They were with him for, we think, a couple years before this, watching his miracles, hearing his teaching, but he had never, at least to our knowledge, turned to them and said, well, what have you deduced about me to date? Now he does that. And he says, who do people in the world think I am? And then, what do you think? And with the answer he receives, then everything turns, as you heard, in a new direction. Because he begins, and it's, you won't find anything earlier than this, in which Jesus speaks about his cross, his death, and his resurrection explicitly. Now that he receives the confession of Peter on behalf of the other disciples, presumably, he's ready to tell them what it will all lead to, and it's something they weren't quite ready for. The confession of the identity of Jesus that bursts out of Peter here is a model confession. It is the confession that anyone needs to make to become a Christian. You are the Christ. Matthew's version adds a clause, the Son of of the living God. They each heard something a little bit different, but they heard the same declaration. You are the Christ. You are from God, the God who lives. And we must make that confession too. But then we must go beyond it to make the part of the confession or understanding that Peter couldn't quite swallow on that particular day. First of all, first point I want you to notice is the variety of worldly opinions about Christ that are here. It's as if, you know, here it is January, college students are ready to start new courses. Suppose you were a college student and you enrolled for a particular class and you went two weeks and then 
at the third class, you showed up, and the professor said, okay, today we're having the final exam. No advance announcement. And he asked an essay question to be responded to. That's the equivalent. Jesus gave them this tremendous question, and they didn't have preparation for it. Who do people say I am? What's the buzz? What are the crowds in society as you folks rub elbows with them in the markets saying as they hear about my miracles and my teachings? What are they saying? Who do they say I am? Well, Peter was ready with answers as a first century Jew. He was immersed in his religion, based around the Jewish temple, and his answers were based around the traditions and the historicity of Jewish faith. Why, you must be a reincarnation of John the Baptist. That's what many say. Or maybe you're Elijah. Actually, those two were, of course, related because people thought John the Baptist was a reincarnation of Elijah when he came. Or maybe you're one of the other prophets. That's the kind of thing people are saying. You see, if this question was being asked in 2019, you and I should easily be able to imagine someone questioning a key leader in our country who's about to announce that they will be one of a plethora of candidates for president in another year. And they might ask their aides and their staff, well, what do people want me to be? What image do I have to fulfill? What, what expectations do you think I need to emphasize? Because after all, image is everything, and I need to shape my image to see if I can get elected president. And so we live in a day when poll takers almost dictate what a person will be, not past acts or even past words, because after all, if you said it two weeks ago and you contradict it today, nobody knows the difference. What do people want me to be? That's the question today. How can I shape myself to get elected? Well, Jesus wasn't asking that question. But millions we know today of half-informed people have opinions about Jesus that are not accurate or adequate opinions. They sit in our churches, churches where often no accurate concept of who Jesus fully is is preached or taught to them. And so they come and go Sunday after Sunday, and they hear, oh, yes, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. That's what he had to say. Live a good life. Be as good as you can. Be gentle with people. Be truthful and obey the Ten Commandments. And Jesus, why he is a representative of the highest form of morality there is. The great epitome of all human ethics, that's Jesus. And I can tell you there are people that have been in churches in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, for 50 years of their lives who've never learned anything different from what their pulpits would teach them. And I don't have a particular church or a particular denomination in mind. That's everywhere when people learn a human-only definition of who Christ was. We don't like to be in the minority, do we? If it's, especially if it's an embattled minority. And, and we know that if we come forth with a biblical, full definition of who and what Jesus Christ is, virgin-born, son of the highest God, God in man, that's not the popular version. That's not the version a lot of people have. And they realize that we've kind of stepped across the line and are saying a minority view to them. If I've learned nothing else in my decades of Christian experience, it is that often the minority view is the right view. 
in fact, more often than not in Christian things. The variety of worldly opinions about Christ will never get you to the truth. But in the second place, we find here in Mark 8, 29, Peter, who, by the way, remember, this is the same guy who usually had his sandal halfway down his throat saying the wrong thing, was for once saying the best thing that could have been imagined. Peter got it right this time. He who denied the Lord and, and said a lot of dumb things here said the right thing. He said the one true profession of faith in Christ. Jesus asked him, okay, Peter, you've given me the world's opinions. What about you? Who do you say I am? That question is posed to you today. Who do you say? Do you say he's someone other than all these opinions of, that merely name him a great religious figure or a great model of human ethics and morality? Who do you say? Well, Peter stepped up to the plate this time with the bases loaded and blasted a home run over the center field fence. He got it absolutely right when he said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah of Israel is what he meant. You are the son of the living God is what Matthew's report is that he said. And he could not have spoken any better than he did. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus responded to him and said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This isn't a mere popular opinion you've spouted. My father who is in heaven showed this to you. That's the way you get the right answer to the surprise final exam. You know, at other times, Peter was wrong in what he spoke. He was even foolish in what he spoke, but this time he was right, and we need to emulate his words. Your profession, your answer to the question, who is Jesus to you, needs to include what he said. Because it's nothing other than a restatement of what Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, those essential verses that tell us if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. There's nothing more essential that a Christian has to believe or say than that. That confession is the very gateway to eternal life. It draws a line in the sand for you to step across. But thirdly, our text spells out for the first time in the life of Christ, the imperative errand of the cross. And if Peter did well with the first question, he did not do so well with the second. Here he was. You think he would come up with something really, a good response when Jesus began to speak. Now it seems he's free when he's heard this profession of faith and he believes, all right, perhaps the other disciples, of course, he knew their minds completely and assumes that they too were agreeing with Peter. He says, well, all right, if they've come that far, then it's time for them to answer the next question. In fact, he didn't ask it as a question. He made it a statement and said now that he must be rejected, suffer, be tossed out by the leaders of his nation, die on a cross, and be raised again. Well, Peter had a response, didn't he? Look what it was. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He went from the best response to the worst in a matter of minutes, rebuking 
the one he had just called the Christ of God, the Messiah of Israel, and saying, no, 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 Lord, no, no. How could you possibly have that read that so wrong? That shall not happen to you. And you see how Jesus responded to him. He rebuked Peter. Not only rebuked him, but in the strongest possible terms, saying to him, Peter, if you're denying what I'm saying here, you are speaking not from God, but from Satan. Get behind me. Get away. This is not what you are to believe or confess. I must do these things. Do you notice that the text says that? He told them that what the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. Must. Imperative. It has to happen. According to who, we wonder. Who? Why must? Well, we know enough of other Scripture to say why he must suffer because he is the innocent Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the righteous Son of God who can only be the offering for mankind's sin in our place as a vicarious shedding of righteous blood to justify us and remove the condemnation that is on us from our birth onwards. That is a central truth of the Bible. And you must not only imitate Peter's good confession, you are the Christ, you must correct his wrong confession and say, you are the one who must and the only one who can make restitution for us and reconciliation between us and God. It's a must because it's a divine imperative ordained of God from all eternity. It's God's plan A. God doesn't have a backup strategy. That's the plan. And it must be accomplished. And we must confess it such. There are two confessions contained here that we must make. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And you are ordained to a destiny of a cross and a death and a resurrection. Those two join together with the right answer are what it means to confess Christ truly in this world. Well, as a concluding point today, I'd ask you to look at how Peter got this thing mixed up. But here's a man, I want to say it this way, that had a strange mixture of saving grace and mortal weakness. And that is what remains in all true Christians. He wasn't odd or weird in that way. All true Christians have a strange mixture of saving grace and mortal weaknesses in which we argue with God. We tell God, that can't be the plan. That can't be what you're doing. This can't be what you want to see in my life. And we go on rebuking God ourselves. Imagine the impudence of a mere man, Peter, saying to the Son of God, no, you've got it wrong. The Son of God had to say it back very strongly. Get behind me, Satan! You're speaking for Satan. You were speaking for God a minute ago. Now you're speaking for the enemy of God. And here we have a great proof that even true believers who cry out to say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are Christ, you are the one appointed to be my Savior, can still show amazing and fallible weakness. Even the best of disciples, every one of us is testimonial to it, can be deceived and entangled in spiritual error and talk back to God, can't we? When's the last time, really, 
I'm only asking you to speak for yourself. That you were arguing with the Lord and saying, you can't want this in my life. This can't be of your appointment. Lord, I, I can't believe that you want me to go through that. I must have understood you wrong. And the heavens are silent and you seem to assume, well, maybe God does want me to go through this after all, depending on his grace and his strength. Who are you to rebuke the plans of God? You've said you are the Christ. Will you deny since he went to rejection and suffering and being outcast and tortured and killed that there might be some inconvenience and pain and difficulty in your life? I ask you how recently you have challenged this God who you said is your Lord and Savior. How often have you said, I cannot believe you would allow, Lord, you let this member of my family die. How, why did you do that? That isn't within the rules of the game. Oh, yes, it is. It's within the same rules of the game that he played. And he died in obedience to those rules. It seems to me the grand lesson here, we could go on very much with this latter part of the text about being called as a disciple, but I would just give you this to say this. We cannot have Christ on our own terms. We cannot have Christ on our own terms. We cannot define the terms of what it is to be a Christian. We're told what it is here. It is first to see that Jesus is the Christ of God, and secondly, that his being the Christ of God involves his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And therefore, for us, it involves difficulty and hardship, And yes, maybe some rejection because we step out into the minority of society that doesn't believe the things about him that we believe that the scripture teaches. And they say, well, you're some kind of a fanatic to believe those things you believe about Jesus. You actually think there are are people who are not going to be in heaven? Well, how can you come up with a thing like that? Well, might be because whole chapters of the Bible talk about it. That's why. We cannot be disciples of Christ and cling to our self-determined plans and our notions of a pain-free existence and discipleship. He's a king. He's a king who had to go to a cross and die and be outcast and suffer and rise again. And his real disciples must join him, not only in recognition of his divinity and his excellence and his amazing demonstration of the being of God. But we, by faith in this crucified king, must discover that anything we would lose, seem to lose, hold on today. Any difficulty we have to take on for him is really something that is counted not for our loss, but for our everlasting gain. We cannot have Christ on our own terms. Father, that's what we're trying to do much of the time. We can picture ourselves being rebuked by Jesus because we have told him how our lives should be ordered, what difficulties should not be allowed, what pains should not be there. But then we look at him and see what he did. He didn't ride in a life of ease, in a motor coach, acclaimed by people throwing flowers at his feet to a throne of shining diamonds or brilliant gold. He finished his task 
on a cross when his bloody body uttered the words, finished. So, Father, lead us to a true confession, one that sees our glorious Savior as the sent one from you, but sees him also as he depicted his mission. May we follow him, obey him, and adore him. For Jesus' sake, amen.